Well, as, uh, as we continue on in our summer series with Jesus, we're going to be uh, in an encounter this morning at the end of the book of Luke. So if you have your Bible, uh, open it up to Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be looking at the road to Emmaus, this seven-mile walk, and it's just a really cool story. But as you're opening up there, I'm going to read a ton of scripture like sort of shotgun style right now. And as I'm reading, just pay attention to, to what I'm saying as you're opening up your Bible to Luke 24. And, and in your mind, who am I actually, who am I talking about? Um, I'm going to give it away. It's Jesus. It's, it's the Sunday school answer. Uh, everybody knows, even if you don't pay attention, the answer is Jesus. But, but listen to all these scriptures. Ready? Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Even my friend in whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I said to them, if it is right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. They pierced my hands and my feet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth mouth. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. He submitted himself to death. He bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. You may not break any of his bones. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. They will look at me whom they pierced. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. For you will not abandon, my, you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see the pit. You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord God might live there. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who am I talking about? Jesus. There's only one person in the history of humankind who I could possibly even kind of be describing, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, here's the setup. All of those things were written 400, 700, sometimes 1,000 years before Mary ever gave birth to her son before Jesus ever walked on the earth. All of those texts that I just read come from the Old Testament, which was completed 400 years before Jesus came to earth and took on flesh. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. And that's one thing that makes our Bible unique amongst all the other holy books of all the other world religions, and that is that God gives prophecy because God is real and in charge, and he can control the future. 
That's incredible. So what I want you to do, and by the way, that was only a small sampling of the more than 350 prophecies throughout the Old Testament that all point forward to Jesus. But what I want you to do right now is just take that and kind of tuck it in your back pocket as we continue on in our series. Open with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 13. And before we do that, just kind of set up where we are in the story. Jesus has come. Jesus has performed signs. He has healed the sick. He has, he has healed the blind. He has spoken graciously to the humble. And he has been put on a cross, and he has been killed, and he's been put into a tomb. Now it's the third day after that has happened, and some women went to the tomb in the morning to go finish their burial preparations, which were cut short because of the Sabbath. And so they go to the tomb to pay respects to their friend, and it's, it's empty, and he's gone, and they're not sure what to do. And an angel comes and says that he's actually alive. What on earth is going on here? So then we jump forward to Luke 24, starting in verse 13. We'll read a little and we'll talk a little. This very day, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Right there. It's like a seven-mile walk. That's like two and a half hours or so of, of unless you're uh, Pastor Josh who runs marathons. That's, he, that's like his short day. He does that in like 15 minutes. But it's a two-and-a-half-hour walk, and these guys are walking back from Jerusalem from celebrating the Passover, and, and they, they have plenty of time to kind of talk, and they're trying to figure out what on earth has happened these past few days. Our friend, the one that we thought was the Messiah, the one that was going to redeem Israel, is dead. And now the, the women go to the tomb in the morning, and he's not even there. Like, what is happening? Their hopes are shattered. They're, they're confused. They're disillusioned. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a second. They don't understand the weight of all that has occurred. They don't have the end of the story yet. And so they're walking along, and they're confused. They're feeling disillusioned and, and, and sad. And, and our leader is go- like, what are we doing? So we'll continue on. With verse 15, he says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Wait right there. So I don't think it was like a fake mustache and glasses. Somehow, supernaturally, Jesus was, was keeping them from being able to recognize him. Uh, but, but he, and I love this, like, I love that. Like, if I were to die and resurrect, this is something that I think I would want to do. I think that I would want to want to do. Just, like, go over to my friends and be like, hey, guys, what's going on? What are you talking about? Like, I think Jesus, in part, is kind of having a go with some of his friends. But we'll we'll continue on reading here and, and see what he says. So, their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So, wait right there. First of all, it notes that they were looking sad. Of course they were looking sad. They're dejected. We just talked about put yourself in their shoes. They don't know what's going on. They just know that their friend is dead and they, all their chips were in on him. 
And then Jesus walks up to his friends. He's like, they, they can't recognize him. And he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one in, who, who, who doesn't know what has happened in Jerusalem in the past couple of days? And of course, that's an ironic statement because Jesus is actually the only one who knows what has happened in Jerusalem in the past couple of days. But he's, gonna, he's not going to just, surprise, it's me, Jesus. No, he has a plan. He has a plan. So let's continue reading and see what he does here. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Oh, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And there's Jesus kind of rubbing his beard like, hmm, that sounds terrible. (laughs) But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Oh, tell me more, Jesus says. (laughs) And moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at his tomb early in the morning, and, and and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. And there's Jesus. Hmm, that's intriguing. Some of those women who went to the tomb found it just, uh, some, of, uh, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so there's Jesus, just kind of, I think in part, I do think that Jesus has a sense of humor, and I think that he's, he has a grand scheme here, a good scheme, but I do also think that in part, he's, he's kind of having fun with his friends, because he, he knows his plan to ultimately reveal himself. He knows what he's going to do. But I think he's having a little bit of fun. And that's a place that I think that you and I can find ourselves in a lot of times is, Jesus, what is happening around me? I don't, I'm, I'm confused. I don't understand the situation. And Jesus is there going, just keep going. Just keep going. Keep following me. It's going to come together. I know that that's been my experience a lot. But he continues on. And Jesus finally opens his mouth and he speaks words of comfort to them in the form of a rebuke. Um, he, he's having kind of a go with them, but, but he also, they're his friends. And he loves them. And he knows what he's about to do. And he knows that he has a plan to reveal himself in a powerful way that they do not see coming. So he opens his mouth in verse 25 and he speaks a rebuke that's actually a comfort. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh my goodness. There's Jesus. They don't know it's him, but there's Jesus expounding upon Jesus. That's a Bible study that I would love to be a part of. Like, I don't, like, Luke, do not gloss over this next part when you're recording what you're recording. Like, dedicate the next 300 pages of the Bible to what Jesus says next. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And I think, I can't tell you for sure why, but I think in part it's because Jesus is literally everywhere in the Old Testament. And there's not enough paper to dedicate that much space to. And the more familiar we become with the New Testament and see Jesus there, 
the more obvious he becomes to us in the Old Testament. So we are going to take a journey through the Old Testament this morning, and I'm just going to point out, we already looked at a lot of the prophecy, but I'm also going to point out just how Jesus is there in the themes and in some of the stories that he's the greater example that all of these things are actually pointing forward to. But before we do that, I just want you to remember that these men, put yourself back in this story. These men are walking along. They have nothing left. They had all their chips in on Jesus, who is now dead and gone, and they don't understand what's going on. So, so that's where they are before Jesus speaks. But with that said, um, there is, we're, we're going to time travel right now. So ready, Wayne's World with me? So it's the summer of 1999, and a movie has just come out, this big giant blockbuster, and that movie is The Sixth Sense. And yes, let that sink in for a second. That's 18 years ago. That means that babies who were born when the sixth sense came out are now graduating high school. Just let that sink in for a second. I'll give you time. I know. It's crazy. But anyway, so the sixth sense comes out, and I think that 18 years is a long enough time where I don't have to actually issue a spoiler alert, but I will be gracious anyway. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to ruin the ending. I'm just going to tell you that there is a major twist. But the sixth sense comes out, right? And, and in this movie, um, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's a really, really great movie. But there's a culminating scene toward the end of the movie that makes you re-picture everything that has happened so far in the movie and view it in a brand new light where you're just like mind blown what on earth just happened here. And then there are some flashback clips that they show through, like it flashes back to this scene and to this scene and to this scene. And it's like, oh my gosh, you were leading us on the whole time. You've got to be kidding me. And, and it's brilliant. But the director wants you to go, he wants you to follow along with the story and be blown away. But then he wants you to go back and re-watch the movie. Like, the, the movie experience isn't complete until you've seen it a second or a third time. Because, you, you, he, like, he wants you to, to go back and, and see the brilliance and the genius of how he was able to kind of lead you to, to, to this final moment. And you're like, how did I miss it the whole way? It's unbelievable. And, and because he's, he's an artist, because he's, he's, telling, he's communicating in a way that's far more powerful than just telling us facts. And God, the creator, he is the ultimate storyteller. And he does this with lives. And he has these true stories written down that we can then look at and go, you've got to be kidding me, God. No way. That's unbelievable. So you can't understand the creator's true intent, be it the sixth sense or the Bible itself, until you understand it in light of its whole. Right? And the idea that the Bible is this unified story, start to finish, has unfortunately been kind of lost in, in a lot of our culture. Because, I, I, you know, I'm not even going to get into why I think that might be. It's not, it's not that important. The important thing is that the Bible is this one unified story, start to finish. And if you just kind of jump in here and there's a weird story there, and then jump over to here and there's kind of a weird story there, it's like, of course it doesn't make sense. That's like watching 15 minutes of, Lord, of like, when I first saw the, the show Lost, 
my, my in-laws were watching it, and I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Like, they're in the jungle, and there's a polar bear. What on earth? And I watched like five minutes, and I turned it off, and I was like, this is the stupidest show ever. And then some friends of mine were like, let's watch it from the beginning. And I was like, oh, this is actually a really cool show. So, um, and don't get into the ending, whatever. But um, this is actually a really cool show. And so it's sort of like that with the Bible. If you kind of pick and choose and just kind of jump in here and don't see it in light of the big picture, of course it's not going to make sense. And I think that's why so many people in our society think that the Bible is useless and irrelevant and, and has nothing to do with today. It, because I think they've been presented or they've seen just sort of these weird stories here and there that they can't kind of put together. I don't understand. And I don't blame them for not understanding if that's the way that it's been presented. But we need to know that it's one unified whole. It's one unified whole, and God has created it using real people and real events that have been recorded for our benefit. The Bible is God's story of the world. It's his perspective. And the more familiar you are with the Bible, the more we understand God's heart. Because, hear this, you can't love God more than you know God. Let that sink in for a second. I think about that really. Like we might have all sorts of gushy feelings like, yeah, Jesus, I love Jesus. Yeah, he's the guy, you know, he, he you know, whatever, flies. He's the guy who, you know, roped the sun or like whatever. It's like, that, I don't know who you're talking about, but that's not Jesus. If you want to love the true God, you need to know the true God. Does that make sense? You following me? Yeah? Cool. So yeah, and it's a journey. And he's so gracious. It's a journey throughout your life. To I know more about him now than I did five years ago, than I did ten years ago. And, and the more I know him and come to him on his terms, the more beautiful he becomes to me. And so we can't love God more than we know him. Because he is the one who is in control of all these events. He's not bound by time. He puts in these pointers and these clues and these, these indicators throughout the entire story that point to what the story is really all about. And so we've already seen it with the prophecy, but let's, let's dive into some Old Testament scriptures and see if we can see Jesus in there. So... It says in, in the text that Jesus started with Moses and all the prophets. So let's, let's start with Moses. Now Moses, when he talks about Moses, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible, the bulk of which is accredited to Moses as the author. So when they talk about the book of Moses, they're actually talking about the law, or the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. And so we'll look right on page three of the Bible, Genesis 3, right after the setup is God has created this amazing world. He has given it to us to have dominion, to multiply, to, to, to spread his glory all over the face of the earth. And we almost immediately pretty much give him the finger and say, we got it from here, God. You go away. We don't want you to rule us. We got it on our own. We, we can be our own gods now. And so God in his mercy and in his grace and in his love, he makes a promise. And starting in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
This is the first promise that God makes about the Messiah. Now, you're not going to read that, and you're not, you're not going to read that for the, you know, and, and then go, oh, oh, so this guy's going to come. He's going to be the son of God. He's going to be the God-man. He's going to take the sins of the world on himself and be crucified under the Roman Empire. You're not going to be able to do that, but it's a breadcrumb. It's a little whisper of what God is going to do to prove to us that he has a plan, that he's actually in charge so I, I, I read this, I, and I, I, every, time, every time I think of that episode of The Office when Michael Scott like, grills his foot with the foreman grill, and then Dwight gets a concussion, and they go to the hospital towards the end, and Michael's like, he, he's all upset because Dwight's actually getting the attention that he wants, and he's like, what's, more, what's, more, or what's worse, a head injury or a foot injury? And the doctor, without blinking, is like a head injury. And so like, if you read this, you see... He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, so the, the whisper that God is whispering to us is that I am sending a rescuer. And in his rescue mission, he will be wounded. And the first promise that God makes is this promise that somehow the Savior, when he comes, he will gain victory through being wounded. So he will actually crush the head while, bruise, while getting his, his heel bruised. So it's a whisper. It's a little breadcrumb along the way. So let's skip forward a little bit, a little bit later in the book of Genesis to Abraham. So God takes Abraham, this man uh, who would become the father of nations. He takes Abraham, who was a pagan. He was not a God worshiper. And he takes him out of that context. He reveals himself to him. And he says, through you, I am going to make a family that will bless all of the nations of the world. It's an amazing promise. But the problem is Abraham doesn't have any offspring. He doesn't even have a child. So how is, how is God going to do this? Well, through a miraculous series of events, God gives him a child, Isaac. And then shortly thereafter, God calls Abraham to bring Isaac up to a mountain and to sacrifice him. It's kind of a messed up story. But let's read it together. Genesis 22 says, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place which... Uh, sorry, when they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It's kind of a messed up story, if we're honest. Like, God would call him to to sacrifice his son. That doesn't sound like something God would do. Keep in mind, God had the plan the whole time. He had the plan the whole time. God knew he was going to provide a ram. Abraham didn't yet. He just called Abraham to to have faith. But if we do look 
Abraham on his way up the mountain, Isaac's like, where's the, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. So he did have some inkling of faith that God was about to do something amazing. But he, as his hand goes up to sacrifice his son, God tells him to stop. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. And the ram takes the place of his son. Now, where's the lamb that Abraham thought that would be provided? Well, if we jump forward and see this as God actually did send his son to be sacrificed. And this time, the blade didn't stop. This time, the sacrifice did happen. And the lamb did die. The son did die. This is a pointer forward. This story is a beautiful story in my perspective because I can see it in light of what it is ultimately pointing towards. And that is the fact that God is calling or calls his own son to be the sacrifice on our behalf. That we get to go free just like Isaac and that the Lamb of God dies in our place. It's an amazing story. So it's a true story. It's a real story that really happened and it's a beautiful story in its own right. But it's even more beautiful when you shed the light of Christ on it. And so move forward a little bit further. We have Joseph. Joseph, one of, one of Abraham's great-grandsons, he's, this, he, you know, he's the youngest of, of 12, and, and his brothers hate him. They want to kill him. He is sold into slavery, event, essentially killing him. He's lied about, once he gets into slavery, he's lied about by Potter, Potiphar's wife. He, he's saved out of the pit. He's saved out of prison where he ascends to the right hand of the throne where he's able to use his influence his power, his wealth, his position to forgive and save the very ones who tried to kill him. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Does this sound familiar to anybody? We have a king, Jesus, who is hated by the people who want to kill him. Ultimately, they do kill him. He was lied about. He was, he was saved out of death he, where he ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he is able to use his position, his power, his influence to forgive and to save those who are responsible for his death in the first place. Hello? Do you see how all of these stories are pointing forward to a greater story that the story is truly all about? So then jump forward again to to Moses. Moses, this man who was saved from a plot to murder him at his birth, where he eventually serves as a mediator between God and humanity, where he, God speaks to him and he then delivers that message to humanity. He helped institute the first Passover, where the blood of an innocent lamb would cover over the sins of God's people, where the the lamb dies in the place of the person as its representative. And ultimately, he delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt. Does this sound familiar to anybody? We have Jesus, who was saved from a plot to murder him at his birth by Herod, where he flees, his family brings him to Egypt where he, he as, as fully God and fully man, as the God-man, he is able to serve as the only mediator between God and humanity, where he still mediates on our behalf. He 
suffered and was crucified during the Passover feast where the true Lamb of God, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, actually did take the sins of the world upon himself and die in our place that we may go free. And ultimately, he's able to deliver us from slavery to sin and death into him, into his kingdom of life and peace and joy. Incredible. Incredible. And, and the Bible is, is full of these things. And now let's, let's slow down one and look at a, a confusing one um, because they're not crystal clear and they're not, they're, they're indicators, right? They just prove to us that God has been stacking the deck the whole time. So let's slow down and we'll take a look at the book of Judges. This is a confusing one. The book of Judges is a messed up book. Just honestly, it's a bloody book. It's, 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 a, it's a weird, tough read. Um, but God is doing stuff throughout that book also. So we'll slow down and we'll, we'll look at this man, Samson, who was one of the judges of Israel. It's really confusing on its surface because this man, he was a violent womanizer who could not control his passions. How on earth could he in any way sort of point us towards Christ other than don't be like Samson? Well, early on in Samson's story, God promises to use this man to begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines, their enemies. And what a relief it is to know that God can use messed up people for his purposes, that he doesn't wait for perfect people because there aren't any, that he can use you in your mess, he can use me in my mess, that we're not going to hinder his plan. How amazing is that? But if we look at Samson's story, right, he eventually, I'm going to really cliff, cliff notes this version, but eventually he gets captured by his enemies and brought to the temple of Dagon, the god of the Philistines, where he stands and he's chained to these pillars in the center of the, te- of the temple there while they mock him. So he's, he's captured, he's tortured, he's mocked. And then we'll read in Judges 16 where it says, And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. It's a weird story. It's a a weird story. What does that even mean? Well, let's look at it again. He he grasped the two middle, middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them. His right hand on the one, and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. That he stands there with his arms outstretched, a familiar pose to us, and he, in his death, gained victory. You see? how we have another indicator that this one, this ultimate rescuer, the one who's greater than Samson will come and in his victory, he will do it through dying. So we'll look at King David. King David, the shepherd king. Does that sound familiar? This, This lowly shepherd that nobody wanted. King David. The story of David and Goliath. Familiar story to many of us. Where you have God's people stacked up on one side, the Philistines again stacked up on the other side, and they send 
Goliath to fight. And God's people are all too terrified. We cannot defeat this man. And so one, this lowly shepherd, comes forward. And he stands as a representative in the place of God's people. And he gains victory over their enemy. Do you see how God has been stacking the deck? Where Jesus stands in our place over the enemy of sin and death and hell that we can't overcome on our own. We need him as our representative. And that's what he came to do. That he's the greater King David. And then I'm just going to lump all of the prophets together. They don't deserve for me to do this, but in the, <laughs> you do because we don't have all day. But, so all of the prophets lumped together. A big, big theme throughout all the prophets. They call people towards repentance and, and trusting in God to turn away from the way that they're walking and to walk back towards God, to stop walking away towards other false gods that are leading towards their death, towards their destruction, and walk back to a God who can, who can forgive graciously with his mercy and kindness and love and long-suffering. And they call God's people towards this. And what do they get? They get rejected. They get ignored. They get mistreated. God has stacked the deck to show ultimately the greater prophet is coming and he's going to be treated in much the same way. Do you see how God has been writing this story all throughout history? That it's always, always pointing forward to Jesus. That the story of the Old Testament is the same story as the New Testament and that story's culmination is Jesus. So Jesus is talking with these guys, right, on the way to Emmaus, this, this two and a half mile, a two and a half hour walk. And he's kind of expounding all of these stories and more. Maybe, I don't know if he, which stories he actually expounded, but he has two and a half hours to do it, so it's, it's, he's got some time. Just imagine what's starting to happen in these guys' hearts. They're going from dejected and confused and disillusioned to, ooh, a glimmer of hope. Ooh, what is going on here? Ooh, this is interesting. So let's continue on in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 28. It says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, that's Jesus. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how it was made known to them, in the breaking of bread. Again, Jesus, storyteller, doing it in a way that is going to be ultimately effective with a little bit of flair. Love that. He waits. He leads them on. It's like when I, was, when I got my first guitar, right? It was Christmas morning, and I knew I was getting a guitar. I knew it. And then Christmas morning comes, and I open all my presents, and there's no guitar. And then about five minutes later, 
Here come my parents. Oh, would you look? We forgot a present. And look at it. It's in the shape of a guitar. My parents were having a ton of fun at my expense. I'm sitting there like disillusioned. Like, I mean, I'm in seventh grade and I'm very, you know, I'm owed a guitar. I asked for one and this is owed to me. So I'm sitting there kind of pouting. And I'm sure I didn't make them very proud at that moment. But at the same time, they knew the plan the whole time. And when they gave it to me, it was way better than if I walked down the stairs initially and saw a guitar sitting under the tree. Jesus is doing this in a beautiful, beautiful way. But isn't it interesting that he waits until he gets into their house and he takes that bread and he blesses it and he breaks it, that he allows their eyes to be opened. This familiar act that he had just instituted a couple nights ago at, at the first institution of the Lord's Supper where he, he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he waits until that culmination, until the time is right and he blesses that bread and he breaks it and he allows them to recognize it's Jesus. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. God is the ultimate storyteller. He is unbelievably artistic and beautiful and wonderful. And he writes these stories in our lives in ways that we probably wouldn't ask for, but he reveals himself as more beautiful than if he had revealed himself in another way, as more powerful, that you were actually in charge the whole time, God. I'm so sorry I doubted you. And the more he does that, the more that faith muscle builds and grows. And these men, they're sitting there, their sorrow has turned into gladness. And we can see that same hour, after a two and a half hour, a two and a half hour walk, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, that same hour, they get up, and I'm sure it didn't take the full two and a half hours to get back to Jerusalem this time. I'm sure they were going at Pastor Josh pace, like 15 minutes. They're back in, they're back in Jerusalem. But that same hour, they go back and they need to share this news And they get there, and they're greeted with their friends who are like, guys, guess what? Jesus appeared to Peter. And they're like, guess what? Jesus appeared to us. And so they're celebrating, and they they still don't have it all together. But they're in the middle of what is happening. This is exciting. He's not dead. Did he? What is going on? They don't have the end of the story yet still, but they are, their spirits have been enlivened by an encounter with Jesus. He's proved to them that even in death, he is still in charge. Even in death, he is still in charge. And so for this week's practical tool, we've, we've been giving you guys practical tools to practice throughout the weeks. Last, let me just remind you, last week's was really great. Five people, you think of five people, five minutes a day, who have influenced you, who have spoken words to you, that have encouraged you, that have somehow done that, and take five people five minutes a day, pray for them, and, and get in touch and contact and thank them somehow. If you haven't done that, there's still time. Um, but this week, this week's practical tool is a little bit different. This week, two words, seek and rest. Seek and rest. See, God says in one of those prophets that we glossed over, he says, seek me and you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. And I believe that. 
And I believe that, and, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily comfort me. Uh, because if I'm completely honest, I can maybe count on one hand how many times I think maybe I have sought God with my whole heart. I'm half-hearted. And, and my bet is that so are some of you. That I want to want him more than I do. And I'm not there yet. And I'm still growing. And he's still teaching me to seek him and to, to know him. But if, like, have, how often do we actually seek God with our whole heart so that verse doesn't comfort me all the time? But I believe that it's true. And I believe that God does call us to seek him. But what I want you to do this week is to know that he has actually come and sought you. And rest in that. That he has done all of the work for you. And rest in that. So whenever you enter into prayer this week, I want you to just start by resting in Jesus. By resting in the knowledge of who he is. That he is mighty. That this world doesn't revolve around you or around me. It revolves around him and he knows you and he loves you in a way that you cannot understand. In a perfect way that will not ever leave you or forsake you or abandon you in a way that is forever. And just rest in that. The fact that God does have an amazing plan for this world But it doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around Jesus. And we can seek and we can trust and we can rest in Jesus. That he is the preeminent one. And that if you have turned from your sin, if you have repented and turned away from the things that are leading you away from God towards death and turned towards him with your heart, with your mind, even if these things are still temptations to you, they don't want, I don't want them to be temptations to me anymore. I want to want you. If that's your heart, then he knows and he is gracious and merciful and he will bring you to the day of completion. If you don't yet know that, if you're still striving to impress God with your good works, if you're stri- still striving to make God love you by the things that you're doing, I'm telling you, Stop trying and rest in the knowledge that he has done it all for you. That Jesus came, he lived a perfect sinless life that you are required to live and I am required to live and we fall short. So in love, in compassion, he came, he lived that life for us. He died the death that we deserve to die so that in Him, we may have new life. We may have Him forever. That's the gospel. That's what the Bible, the the, the story culminates in. With Jesus in this relationship with us. Beautiful. This relationship that we restored, He makes right. So, I don't have a really practical tool for you this week, but I think that the most practical thing you can do is to just rest in the knowledge that Jesus is in control, that he loves you in a way that you cannot fully fathom, 
And I trust that in doing that, the Holy Spirit will stir up your hearts and do the work that I can't possibly do. That the Holy Spirit will stir up your hearts in ways that are amazing and will blow you away. He will use your life for, for so much more than you could even ever ask for. And I'm just trusting just by stopping and seeking and resting in him. We do that this week. Stop striving and start resting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we are gathered here this morning, I thank you for your word to us, to the fact that that we can't do this on our own. And God, that you are in charge so I don't have to be. Father, I thank you for 15 years ago when somebody shared this message with me and the, the, the journey that you took me on into finally seeing the truth and the beauty of Jesus and what you have done in my life since that time is something that I would have never asked for. But God, it's more beautiful than anything that I could have asked for. And I pray for my friends here in this room, some of whom are here maybe for the first time, some of whom have never heard this message before, some of whom who have heard this message for a thousand times, God, that it speak freshly to them, that they may rest in the knowledge of the goodness of you and the fact that it's not through striving and it's not through trying that you redeem us. It's through relenting and just giving it up to you, God. So Holy Spirit, please move in a way that I can't possibly do it. Speak to hearts. And this week, Lord, may we rest in Christ and spur us on towards love and good works so that our neighbors will know this message as well so that we can continue the work that you have been doing for 2,000 years in restoring the world and beyond. In, in, since before, it's been going on since the beginning. So Father, please have your way here amongst us. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.